0: Hey everybody, how you doing this morning? Well, let me pray as we come to God's Word this morning. Father, we just come, and I know that for some people in this room, the subject of parenting is a very painful and brings up very painful memories because of maybe their own parents or, and the way that they were parented, or maybe uh, they had dreams for their family and it didn't quite work out the way that they had hoped. Lord, I pray that these words would be healing words, that they would be helpful words, Father, for they come from your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we are concluding our series this morning on gospel-centered relationships. And we're finishing off with gospel-centered parenting. But to start today, I want to talk about parenting over the last hundred years. You see, if you are a Gen Xer or older then you are probably parented with a philosophy that I'd like to entitle adult-centered parenting. Adult-centered parenting. You see, adult-centered parenting, it focuses on strict rules. It focuses its parenting on making children abide by the rules. Parents are therefore disciplinarians. They are the ones who enforce the rules. Children are to be seen and not heard. Now, who's heard that expression before? Children are be seen and not heard, as an expression that was told to me many times growing up, as you can imagine. Um, <laughs> uh, and the whole goal in adult-centered parenting was to raise compliant children, children who abided by the rules. Now, child-centered parenting did raise compliant children. But for many children who were raised under this philosophy of parenting, they actually resented their parents. You hear many stories of of children saying, yes, my parents, they were strict. They, you know, they parented me right. But man, my my dad was a, you know, he was a piece of work. In reaction against adult-centered parenting, the pendulum has swung the other way to child-centered parenting. Now, child-centered parenting, whereas the focus in adult-centered parenting is on strict rules, in child-centered parenting, it's on the needs of the child. Rather than being a disciplinarian in child-centered parenting, the parent walks alongside of the child and seeks to coach the child. Uh, Rather than uh, children being seen and not heard in child-centered parenting, children are to express themselves and their individuality. They're encouraged in that way. And rather than the goal being to raise compliant child, in child-centered parenting, The goal is to raise autonomous children, children who are individuals and express their individuality. Now, it's interesting, after 30 years of child-centered parenting, even psychologists nowadays are questioning child-centered parenting philosophy. Michael Mascolo, who's a PhD and who writes on the Psychology Today blog, he writes this. He says, we are often told that it's good for parents to be child-centered, The child-centered movement was an alternative to what is sometimes called adult-centered parenting. In adult-centered parenting, parents set the rules and children are expected to follow them. In contrast, child-centered parenting is parenting organized around the needs and interests of the child rather than those of the parents. But he writes, research shows that there is a rather large paradox in child-centered parenting. Parents who emphasize loving care over high expectations tend to have more conflict in their homes than not. This is because child-centered parenting often follows a predictable pattern. Mummy will ask Nikki to clean her room, but Nikki doesn't want to. Out of love, mum lets Nikki off cleaning until later. Then mum asks Nikki again. Nikki promises to do it later. Finally, mum gets frustrated and screams, clean your room right now! When Nikki resists, and why wouldn't she? She's learnt she doesn't have to comply with mum's requests. An argument brews. McCaskill writes, child-centered parenting has produced entitled, narcissistic children who lack the capacity to persevere and cope with difficulty. So the question is, is there an alternative to adult-centered parenting, which tends to make kids resentful, or child-centered parenting, which tends to make kids narcissistic? And the answer, of course, is yes. What I'm proposing is gospel-centered parenting, that instead of putting adults at the center of parenting or children at the center of parenting, gospel-centered parenting puts Jesus at the center of parenting. So in contrast to adult-centered parenting and child-centered parenting, the focus in gospel-centered parenting is the gospel. It's Jesus. Rather than uh, just being a disciplinarian or walking alongside of the child, in gospel-centered parenting, the parent is a shepherd, seeking to shepherd the hearts of the children. Rather than children being seen and not heard, or children expressing their self and their individuality, in child-centered parenting, the heart of child-centered parenting is to turn the heart of the child to Christ. And rather than the goal being to raise compliant children or autonomous children, in gospel-centered parenting, the goal is to lead them to be worshippers of King Jesus. So the question is, is how do you become a gospel-centered parent? How do you move away from being an adult-centered parent or being a child-centered parent? How do you become a gospel-centered parent where Jesus is at the center of your parenting? Well, firstly, gospel-centered parents embrace their God-given responsibility to parent their children. In Ephesians 6 verse 4, the Apostle Paul writes this, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The verb bring them up is in the active, imperative, Voice. It is in the voice of command, and the implication is this, is that children need to be brought up, is that children need parenting. And if you don't parent kids, then they won't turn into healthy adults. Now there are two reasons why children need parenting. The first reason that children need parenting is because of the innate foolishness that is within children. Proverbs 22, verse 15 says this, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. You see, children are innately immature. They innately, just because they're immature, they make foolish decisions. And so they need parents to guide them. Children, by nature, do and say foolish things. They make foolish decisions because they have not learnt by experience the path of wisdom. This is pre-fall. Children always needed parents, they were always this way immature and therefore needed the guidance of parents. But also the second reason why children need parenting is not only because of innate foolishness but because of innate fallenness. Um, Psalm 58 verse 3, the psalmist writes, even from birth the wicked go astray, from the womb they are wayward and speak lies. Post-Genesis 3, every single one of us are born with a sinful nature that we've inherited from Adam. And so children by nature are born with a fallen nature and are selfish and self-seeking, and therefore they need parents to bring them up in the Lord. You see, it is not the church's responsibility to parent my children. We have great children's ministry programs, we have a great youth ministry, but it is not the church's responsibility to bring up my children. It is also not the school's responsibility to parent my children. Nowadays, many, many, uh, you know, you talk to teachers and what's happening is that many, um, many parents are farming off that responsibility to teachers, but it's not actually the school's responsibility to parent my, my children. No, the Bible makes it very clear that it is my responsibility as a parent to parent my children. It is a high and holy and sacred calling. It is our responsibility as parents to raise our kids. You know, I don't want to put guilt on anyone here today, but it's really interesting that nowadays many people are having children, and yet even why they have children They then farm their children off to after-school care programs, and they farm their children off to all different programs to look after their kids. And I know there might be economic reasons for that, but do you realize that this is a huge responsibility that God has given you to parent and bring up your kids? In fact, I would say in my life, apart from my marriage being being a husband to my wife, the next responsibility that God has given me is to shepherd and to bring up my kids. That is a high and holy calling. God is giving you a little piece of the future and he's entrusting you to actually bring that child up. So gospel-centered parents, they take it as their responsibility. This is my responsibility, my calling, to bring up this child. Secondly, gospel-centered parents make the heart the target of their parenting. You know, a key question when it comes to parenting (coughs) is what shapes a child into who they will become? What is it that actually shapes children into who they will become as they grow into adults? Well, there are shaping influences on children's lives. For example, the family structure that you grew up in had shaped you as a person. The type of family structure, you know, if you had a lot of brokenness in your family, that will have an effect on you today. The family values that you, that your family modeled for you. So if your family valued money, if your family valued success, if your family valued grades and academic achievement, that has an effect on you. The family roles that you saw modeled by your mother and your father, that had an effect on you. Also, family conflict resolution, the way that conflict was dealt with in your family has shaped you as a person today. So whether, you know, in your family people got angry really quickly and just said whatever came out of their mouth, or whether people sort of were more passive aggressive, that has shaped you as a person today. Also, your family history has shaped you. Whether there was some sort of tragedy that occurred in your family, that will have an effect on children. And obviously, exposure to fallenness Will have an effect on children. When children are exposed at a young age to evil in the home, this has an effect on children. But what the Bible says is while there are all these shaping influences that that exert an influence on children, it's not the primary thing that determines the behavior of a child. In Proverbs 4 verse 23, the writer of Proverbs says this, "'Keep your heart with all diligence, For from it, your heart flows the issues of life. You see, out of the heart comes all of our behavior, our attitudes, what we say. Jesus said, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so while all of these things, family structure, family values, family roles, family conflict, family history, exposure to fallenness, can exert an influence on a child's heart, ultimately, Ultimately, it is what is in their heart and how they respond to those things around them that will determine their future. And as we've said, the hearts of children, by nature, are foolish and fallen. Now, this sort of perspective on what's called anthropology, the nature of humanity, it helps us to avoid two actual extremes. On the one hand, it helps us to avoid denial. It helps us to avoid thinking that we play no part in shaping our children. You know, it is true that if you provide for your children a a godly, stable home life, it will have a great impact on them. So this helps us to avoid denial. But on the other hand, it helps us to avoid determinatism. You know what determinism is? Determinism is the idea that if you follow all these things and follow all these steps, that automatically your children will turn out a certain way. Paul Tripp, he writes this, he says, you must do all that God has called you to do, but the outcome is more complex than whether you have done the right things the right way. He says, determinism makes parents conclude that good shaping influences will automatically produce good children. This often bears bitter fruit later in life. Parents who have unruly and troublesome teenager or a young adult conclude that the problem is the shaping influences they provided. They think that if they had just made a little bit better home, things would have turned out okay. They forget the child is never determined solely by the shaping influences of life. Now, this has massive implications for raising kids. Firstly, what your children say and do is actually a reflection of what is in their hearts. And behavior, therefore, is not the basic issue. It's a manifestation. You know, when you see your, your child complaining or you see them lying or you see them arguing or fighting with their sibling, that's not the basic issue. It's that behavior is not the basic issue. It's a manifestation of a dif- deeper issue. And that deeper issue is that children are not... Uh, neutral, they either bow before God or they bow before idols erected in their own hearts. And therefore, as parents, we must help our children understand how their straying hearts has resulted in wrong behavior. And so let me give you a case study, a very real example this morning. You know, you are sitting at home, just resting, and you hear World War III break out in the next room. And you come into the next room and you find two of your children fighting over a toy. No, I had it first. This belongs to me. No, I had it first. It belongs to me. How do you respond to that situation? Well, the absent parent, they would not be present, so the strongest child would win. The absent parent would just be still watching Netflix and just try and ignore all the screaming that's going on in the next room. Now, this would obviously end with a lot of pain and hurt for children. The permissive parent, well, they would go out and buy another toy or do a bargain. You know, They would come in and say, hey, you know, if you just let your sister have the toy, then I'll take you to McDonald's you know, to try to so, keep the peace and have some sort of bargain. The protective or the controlling parent, they would set up rules. Who was playing with it first? Now this might seem like a good rule, whoever was playing with it first, they get to play, continue playing with it. But often what happens in this scenario is the child that is more verbal, that has, can put forward a better case, which is typically the older child, they'll get their way, causing frustration, pain and hurt in the younger child. Now, the gospel-centered parent, they try to get to the heart of the matter, giving appropriate discipline. Now this has happened in my family. I would come in, and World War III would be breaking out in the next room, and I would come in, and after you sort of settle the kids down, because, you know, when people are angry, they can't make good decisions, so you try and, you know, diffuse the situation and settle the situation down, I would then ask my children, what did you want? And one of my kids would say, duh, Dad, I wanted the toy. What do you want? I want the toy. And I'd be like, okay, do you see what's happening here, kids? Is what you're desiring, what you're wanting is your own way? Is your own way. And the Bible actually says that we are to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. The Bible actually says in Philippians 2 that we are not to look out for our own interests, but we're also to look out for the interests of others. What has been, what, whose interests are you looking out for in this situation? I guess my own own interests. And then what I do with my kids is I say, "Let's, let's go to Jesus. Let's come to Jesus and ask him to forgive us for our selfishness. And that selfishness has caused this fight. And let's ask Jesus to give us the grace to actually die to what we want so we can serve each other. Paul Tripp writes, this understanding does marvelous things for discipline. It makes the heart the issue, not just behavior. It focuses correction on deeper things than changed behavior. The profoundest issue is what happens in the heart. Your concern is to unmask your child's sin, helping them to understand how it reflects a heart that is strayed. This leads to the cross of Christ. It underscores the need for a savior. It provides opportunities to show the glories of God who sent his son to change hearts and to free people enslaved to sin. See, parents, if you want to teach your children the gospel, it doesn't just happen by, like, when they're five, telling them about Jesus and asking them to invite Jesus into their hearts. It actually, if you want to teach your kids about the gospel, It actually happens in those moments of conflict where you show them how their heart has strayed and you point them to Jesus, you point them to the cross, you point them to grace. You see, because the gospel isn't just something that we need when we get into salvation, it's actually something that we need ongoingly. We need the grace of God every single day of our lives. And so gospel-centered parents, they take the responsibility, the high and holy calling to parent their children. They make the heart the target of their parenting. And then thirdly, gospel-centered parents nurture, discipline, and instruct their kids. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians 6 verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. This is for all the dads there here. This is primarily to dads that Paul is writing. Do not provoke. The idea of provoking is the idea of stirring up. It's the idea of like annoying, ac- exacerbating, prompting anger in the heart of your children. And we can do this in many ways. We can do this by being unfair with our kids, we can do this by showing favoritism that will provoke your kids to anger. We can do this by being harsh and lacking understanding. You know, I realized this a while back, many years ago with my children, is like, I wanted to go to school and get to school and work on time. And so one minute before we would leave, I would tell my kids, come on, get ready. Let's get in the car. Come on, we've got to go. Come on, get yourself ready. Come on, come on, come on, come on. I'd be rushing them out out of the house. And I would be like frustrated and angry because they weren't ready and they were still trying to tie their shoelaces. And they would be angry at me because they're trying to get ready. And I realized the problem was not with them. The problem was with me. The children, they couldn't get ready in a minute. They needed time to sort of put their shoes on, get their bag ready, get themselves ready. I needed to give them more preparation, like a 10 minute or a 15-minute warning telling them that we're going like 10 minutes, and 15 minutes. I was harsh and lacked understanding. Self-righteousness and not admitting you are wrong can provoke your children to anger. You know, I used to know a dad who used to say, Dad is right even when he's wrong. (laughs) That's a holly for rubbish. When he's wrong, he's wrong, and he should admit he's wrong. We can provoke our children to anger by being controlling domineering and squashing them by our behavior over them. But opposite to this, opposite to provoking our children to anger, we should actually nurture our children, and we nurture them through encouragement and love. You know, tell your children every day you love them. I love you. And try and find things that your kids are doing that is like where they're doing well and actually encourage them when they do well. Now, um, in our family, like I don't just encourage our kids when they achieve, I actually encourage them when they you know, show character. It was interesting, Emma came home this last week and she brought her report card home, and she did excellent. She did really, really well. Really proud of her, uh, what she did um, at school. She's doing so well academically. But she said to me, she said, Dad, you don't seem all that interested in our academic achievement. And our kids, each one of them, who've graduated high school so far, Hannah, Abby, and Emma, they've done astounding, they've they've been fantastic in academics. They've done really, really well. And I said to Emma, well, the reason is, is I care more about who you are than what you do. For me, what I care about mostly is not academic achievement, but your character, the person you are becoming. You know, if you try your best and study hard and discipline yourself, that's what I care about. The result on the other end, There's a number of different factors that will lead to a good result or a bad result. But what I care about is your character. And I've got to tell you, my kids have been absolutely amazing. I love my children. Over these last five months, as Tegan has struggled and we've struggled as a family, my, my children have just stepped up and they have taken on household duties in order to help us and to serve us. That's character. That's what you should encourage in your kids. But we also nurture our children through relationship, through spending time with them, by just hanging out with them and having fun with them. You know, I don't know what type of culture you want in your home, but the type of culture I want in my home is that when the kids come home, they feel this sense of acceptance. They feel like there's a light sort of attitude in the air. There's a lot of fun. There's a lot of joking. They feel acceptance. They feel safe. That's the type of home I want to have. And that's developed by relationship, by spending time with your kids. And then we nurture our kids by extending trust, especially as they grow older into teenage years, by actually putting it back on them and helping them make decisions, and actually trusting them to make decisions. I remember this one time, one of our children, who will remain nameless, came, came, to, came to me, and she said to me, I want to get a nose ring, Dad. Right? Now, as soon as she said those words, fear gripped my heart. <laughs> but I was good. I, was, I, 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 like, I, I spoke to myself. I said, Timon, just take that captive, Right? Don't let her see that you're freaking out right now. So like, you know, on the surface, I was quiet and calm. I was like the duck, you know, on the surface, quiet, calm, underneath, like like this, you know. But, but, you know, I, I, I just said, oh, okay, that's, that's interesting. Uh, that's an interesting thing. You want to know, ring, You know, and then I said this to her. I said, I trust you. You'll make a good decision. You'll make a good decision. You know, um, they didn't end up getting a nose ring, by the way, but in that moment, they knew that their dad trusted them and respected them and believed in them. You know, your children are going to spend way more time apart from you as adults than underneath your room, underneath your house, and so you want a parent in such a way that you prepare them for that eventuality so that they can make decisions. And guess what? They'll make some poor decisions as well. They'll make some foolish decisions and they'll reap the consequences of those decisions and they'll sin. And how do I know that? Because I've made a whole heap of foolish decisions and have sinned a lot in my life. In fact, I like to say to my kids, kids, I've made way more foolish decisions and have sinned way more than you have. And that's the truth. Because I'm older than them. And so we nurture our children, but also our children need discipline and instruction. Now, what right do parents have to discipline their children? Well, Paul, before, after, before he addresses parents, he addresses children, and he says this, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Now, the reason we discipline our children is not for our own selfish purpose. You've got to get this. We don't discipline our children just because we want a peaceful home where there is no chaos. Now, that will be the result of disciplining your children. But we actually discipline our children because it's what God requires of children. God has said to children, children, obey your parents. And we are doing God's will when we discipline our children. But further, Paul goes on to write this. He says, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with the promise. Now, this is not the first of the Ten Commandments. It's the fifth of the Ten Commandments. But it's the first one that actually contains a promise in it. So that if you do this commandment, this is what God promises you. He promises that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So for the people of Israel, if they obey this commandment to honor their father and mother, it will go well with them, they will be under God's blessing, and they'll live a long life. Now, this is generally true, and the reason this is generally true because the way that God has set up the world is He set up the world with various authorities. The government obviously has authority over us. School teachers have authority over students. Employers have authority over employees. And obviously over all of these authorities is God's ultimate authority. And there is this principle that God has woven into the fabric of reality that when you respect and honor the authorities that are over you, it goes well with you. And the very first place that a person learns to respect the authority that's placed over them is in the home, as children learn how to respect the authority of their parents. Ted Tripp, Paul's Tripp brother, he writes this, obviously the child who submits to parental authority is richly blessed. I grieve to see children who were never taught these principles knocked about by life because of their rebellious, unsubmissive behavior. By contrast, I delight to see parents internalize these principles and raise children with a healthy respect for and submission to authority. The result is children for whom it goes well. They are respected by their teachers. They are given special opportunities. They are esteemed by their peers in the Christian community. They grow in spiritual insight as they submit to God and walk in wisdom's path. Genuine submission to godly authority bears good fruit. So the reason that we discipline our children is not for our own selfish purpose, but it's because it's what God requires of our children, and they will be blessed by it. Now let me look at some reasons why we don't discipline. Why don't we discipline our kids? Well, first reason is because it is tiring to be consistent. If you're going to discipline your child, you're going to have to discipline them according to rules and you're going to have to put in a routine. And that's going to have to be the same today, tomorrow, next month, next year. And we all have jobs and we have lives and it is tiring, isn't it? I get an amen from any parents out there to be consistent in discipline. It is tiring. I'm so glad that my kids are growing into young adults. That period of life, when they were like two to about ten, was just like a whole season of like just being tired all the time. I don't know how to describe it other than that. And so it is tiring. And so here's the thing. Is that you'll need capacity to be a parent. So if you don't have capacity to do it, maybe you do need to simplify your life in order to take up this vital responsibility. But secondly, maybe reasons that some of you don't discipline is because you're unsure of the rules. You know what tends to happen is we discipline our children and parent our children the way that we were parented. The rules that we put in place are the rules that our parents actually had in our home growing up. And maybe there might be some people here today and you didn't have very good role models as parents. And so you're wondering, what are the rules? What rules should I put in place in my family? Well, I want to teach you some hermeneutics this morning. And I promise that this will be helpful, all right? You're just going to trust me? Is everyone going to trust me right now? All right, so here's some hermeneutics for you. You see, the way that the scripture comes to us is it comes with Bible commands and principles. And we then take those Bible commands and principles and through the Holy Spirit and in community, we then make human applications in order to apply those biblical principles to our lives. And biblical principles and commands... They are timeless and universal. That means they are true always and they're true everywhere. Thou shalt not murder. Is that true in Australia? Uh, is it true in Bangladesh? Is it don't you don't seem convinced? Is it true in Bangladesh? Yes. Is it true in the United States? Yes. Okay, but then human applications that we draw from timeless biblical commands and principles, they are time-bound and they are specific. Now, why is this important? Let me ask you a question. What should be the bedtime for a six-year-old? What does the Bible say? (laughs) Open up to the passage of the Bible that tells you what time a six-year-old should go to bed. The answer is actually, obviously, the Bible doesn't give a specific time that children should go to bed. So then I have a question class... So should you set a bedtime for a six-year-old? If the Bible has no specific command telling you when a six-year-old should go to bed, should you set a bedtime for a six-year-old? Well, absolutely. But why? Well, it's because the Bible teaches the principle that we should have a healthy routine of work and rest. That's what the, the principle that the Bible teaches that we should take time to work, and we should also take time to rest. So for a six-year-old, I would set a bedtime of somewhere between 6.30 to 7.30, depending on your family routine and the child themselves. Now, in our family, with our older three children, Hannah, Abby, and Emma, when they were growing up, the bedtime was 7 o'clock. And Dallas Seminary, when we lived there, where they would go to bed, Every, time, every, every night at 7 o'clock, we would put them to bed. But then when we moved to Australia, back to Australia, and we had Ava and Isabella, we moved the bedtime from 7 o'clock to 7.30. Now, you can imagine Hannah and Abby were outraged. <laughs> Mom and Dad, you've gone liberal <laughs> in your old age. You've moved bedtime from 7 o'clock to 7.30. How unfair you are, Mom and Dad. But the reason is, is that the situation and circumstances had changed. When we were in Dallas, we lived in a two-bedroom apartment. We were in one room, and all of the kids were in the other room. Hannah, Abby, and Emma, and Emma was five years younger than Hannah and Abby, and we wanted them to all go to bed at the same time at 7 o'clock. And to be quite honest, we needed the break. (laughs) When 7 o'clock came, we needed some rest ourselves. And so that's why we set the bedtime at 7 o'clock. Now, there are some implications from this for today. So, first implication is that churches need to guard against raising up human applications, even good ones, drawn from biblical commands and principles, and putting them on the same level as Scripture. As I just said, that what I gave you, 6.30 to 7.30, is just something that I came up with that I think is wise, given a child's age, but it's not in the Bible, so, we shouldn't raise it up to the level of biblical command because then we'll become Pharisees and legalistic. But on the other hand, uh, Christian parents need to make application and rules from biblical commands and principles and then enforce them consistently as boundaries in the home. You know, one of the principles of the Bible is that children should honor and respect adults, that's a biblical principle. So what I've done with my children growing up is I ask my children not to call adults by their first name, but to call them Mr. and Mrs. Because that shows a level of respect for adults. Now, you can choose what you do in your family, but you do need to actually do practical things. You do need to put practical things in place in your family in order to apply the Scripture to your life. Now, thirdly... Christian parents need to parent their younger children a lot div- different from their teenage and young adult children. What I mean is that when they're young, you just give your kids rules and routines. You, don't, you just actually tell them, bedtime is 7 o'clock, you're going to bed. That's it. And you give them the rule and the routine. But as they grow up, you teach them the principle and you focus less on the rule. So you're teaching the reason behind the rule that you have created, so that then when they become a young adult, you trust them to implement the principle for themselves. So for example, my older children, I now no longer have a bedtime for Abby. She's working as a nurse. She makes her own bedtime. And guess what? As I said before, there are times where she will make a mistake. She'll go to bed way too late, but she'll reap the consequence of that, and she'll learn from her mistakes. You see, what i found is that some Christian parents, when their kids get to the teenage years and they start to rebel, they freak out. And then they, then they try to clamp down with strict rules, and they try and make you know, all these sort of rules and try to force the kid to obey. Unfortunately, I have to say to you, by this point, it is too late. It is too late. You need to still nurture your child. You need to still love your child. And maybe just like the prodigal son, the father, who when his son came to him and said, Father, give me my inheritance. You might need to let them go and experience the consequences of their sin so that hopefully they will turn and they will run back. And I know that's hard. And it takes faith. It takes faith to trust in God and His sovereignty and the way He'll work in that child's life. But maybe that's what what needs to happen because I've found that if if you bring the law in and you bring strict rules in when they're teenagers, they'll just resent you and they'll turn against you. You see, you will make mistakes and they will make mistakes. But that's why we have the grace of God and the gospel. That's why we have the grace of God in the gospel. So let me give you some applications this morning. Here's application number one. Assess where you are as a parent. Why don't you go home with your, with your spouse if you have one, or, or just with a friend if you're a single parent, and just assess where, where are we as a parent? Where, are, where, where am I in my parenting right at this moment? Where do we, what do we need to improve on in terms of discipline and nurture and uh, instruction? Are we parenting parenting the hearts of our kids? Is Is that the target that we are targeting at? Number two, get a member in the church, a mentor in the church to mentor you. You know, it is very biblical. The Bible says, Paul writes to Titus, and he says, older women need to teach younger women, and older men need to teach younger men. And we have some brilliant, brilliant parents in this church that if you approach them and said, help me. Help me, help me to parent my kids, help me. I'm sure they would, I'm sure they would. And finally, rest in the gospel. One of the things that I think cripples parents is we feel like such failures. And we can feel like such failures that that guilt overwhelms us and so we don't even try. You know, I wrote this on the Oakton Notice Board this week. Just to try and prepare for this talk, I said to all parents who have failed, who live with regret because of the mistakes you've made with your kids, God loves you and forgives you. His fatherly love towards you does not depend on your success as a parent. (laughs) He loves parents who fail because there aren't any other kind of parents. There's only one perfect heavenly father. We are going to be imperfect as parents. We are going to make mistakes. But we rest in the grace of God. And if you need to come again and start that journey again, it is a long journey, and it's not something that you just do one time. You actually have to do it over and over again. That's the journey of parenting. But there is grace for you to come back and say, God, give me me the grace to overcome my failures and help me to love and parent my children where they are at right at this moment help me to be the shepherding leader that you call me to be let me just pray for us now let's stand together oh Lord we just thank you for um, the grace of God and we we thank you uh for what we've learned today from your word. Lord, we don't want to be adult-centered parenting. We don't want to be adult-centered parents where the focus is on what we want. And we also don't want to be child-centered parents. We're just focused on the needs of our children, but we want to be Jesus-centered parents. Our greatest desire as parents is for our kids to experience in our homes the grace of God, the gospel of God, because they see two parents who need Jesus, and who walk with Jesus, and who love Jesus, and we hope that then they see that, they just say, I want that too. (laughs) I desire that for myself. He is such a good Savior. And I just pray, Father, for all of our community here. The the future generation is riding. (laughs) not on how good our children's ministry is or how good our youth ministry is, but actually on what we pass on, whether like in Psalm 115, we will declare to the next generation the infinite greatness of our God who is unsearchable, unsearchable. Oh Lord God, we thank you for this message today. And we just praise you and worship you in Jesus' powerful own name. Amen. Amen. We're now going to sing. What a friend we have in Jesus. That's a great thing, man. I was. Who reads the soap readings? Yesterday was on John 10 about the Good Shepherd. A good Shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. I just wrote in my soap journal. I'm thankful that Jesus is my Shepherd. I don't need to shepherd myself, he's shepherding me, he's going to lead me into good pasture. He's going to lead you, he's going to lead you into good pasture, he's your good shepherd.